Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes two experts talking about their academic and industry insights. In today's podcast, we have Michael Haliasos, professor of microeconomics and finance at Goethe University in Frankfurt and director of the Pan-European Network for Research on Household Finance. The other expert is Elias Papayuan, professor of economics at the London Business School and co-director of the Wheeler Institute for Business and Development. Hello to everybody and uh, very many thanks for joining. Uh, we would like uh, to thank uh, Aristia for this uh, invitation. My name is Michael Haliasos. I'm currently a professor of macroeconomics and finance at Goethe University in Frankfurt and uh, director of the Pan-European uh, Network for Research on Household Finance under the auspices of the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. Um, a brief uh, look at uh, my milestones. I graduated from Athens College in uh, Greece then I did my undergraduate uh, studies on economics at uh, Cambridge University. Then I moved to the US and did my PhD at uh, Yale under the supervision of Jim Tobin and William Nordhaus. Uh, and uh, I got my first job at the University of Maryland in College Park, where I met my wife who is from Cyprus. And at that time, the Cyprus University, the University of Cyprus was founded. So we moved to Cyprus and I spent more than 10 years there contributing to the setup of the university. And then I re-exported myself and my family to the north. Uh, and I came to Germany, to Frankfurt, two years after the ECB was founded. And since then I'm doing academic research, but also collaborating with the ECB on issues of household finances. Thank you, Mihaly. I'm Elias Papayoano. Uh, I'm a professor of economics at the London Business School, where I also co-direct the Wheeler Institute for Business and Development that aims to foster research and teaching initiatives on the intersection of business and development. Uh, myself, uh, I was trained as a lawyer. Uh, I did my undergrad in Athens uh, in the law school. And subsequently, I gradually moved to economics, obtaining a master's degree at Columbia University and subsequently earning my PhD uh, from the London Business School. Uh, after spending two years at the European Central Bank, I moved to the US. Uh, I did my tenure track uh, at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, spending two fantastic years at Harvard University. Uh, then I met my wife, uh, Hariklia, with whom we have two uh, great kids, uh, Miltos and Nicole. I moved to Europe, uh, and currently I'm a professor at the London Business School. We also spent a fantastic year, three years ago, just before the pandemic at MIT, where I was the Varian uh, professor uh, at the economics department. Yeah, so I must start saying that, you know, I'm not particularly focused. I like navigating into various fields. And one of the great things of the transformation of the economics profession in the past 20 years is that it is now much more focused on methods and approaches, very much data-driven, trying to address questions that have baffled uh, important uh, scholars, I would say, not only in economics, but policy science, social sciences more generally. 
So one genre of my work studies the role and the driving forces of political regimes, such as democratic transitions. And more recently, alongside uh, with Sergei Guriev, we are working to understand the origins and the implication of the populist uh, specter that is haunting not only Europe, uh, but uh, is quite present in emerging markets. Uh, perhaps the most uh, important part of my work regards the intersection of political economy and economic history with a particular uh, focus on Africa. Uh, alongside Stelios Michalopoulos, a dear friend and colleague at Brown University, who have been working to try to shed light on the origins of contemporary African development, which, as we document, exhibits sizable uh, inertia. And at the same time, we observe significant differences uh, in economic performance, in education, in human capital opportunity, uh, not only across countries, but also across areas within countries, for example, across ethnic lines or religious lines. And actually, a third area of my research uh, regards international finance and more generally uh, the driving forces and implications of the spur of cross-border uh, uh, transactions, mostly what we call in as financial liberalization. Great. How about uh, you, uh, Michali? Uh, so, Ilya, my um, major area of uh, focus over the many years is uh, what has come to be uh, shaped as uh, household finance uh, research. Uh, I was uh, happy uh, to be part of the uh, origins of this research at the very start of uh, my career. This field uh, studies uh, the financial behavior of households. Uh, so basically, their investments in different types of assets, such as financial assets ranging from deposits uh, to mutual funds to retirement accounts, um, but also real assets, such as uh, the, ho the home, uh, or uh, a private business for a subset of the population. And also on the debt side, uh, we look at uh, consumer debt, credit cards, consumer loans, uh, but also at very important, uh, the very important issue of uh, mortgages, which became you know, very prominent during the financial crisis, of course. Uh, but not only on you know the asset and debt behavior of households, but uh, what uh, determines it, what can influence it in a positive or a negative direction. So uh, we look at differences in household financial behavior across countries. We look at differences and inequality within countries. So wealth inequality, for example, is a very active uh, hot uh, topic on which I'm also working. Uh, currently, uh, we are looking at financial advice and the conflicting uh, incentives, the, the conflict of interest uh, that arises there on financial literacy, how to empower households in their financial behavior, starting from schools, but also later on, on um, the role of culture in uh, household financial behavior, um, so cultural predispositions, do they influence it and how? And do they disappear over time as greater harmonization uh, is observed of policies and institutions across countries? Um, we um, look at uh, modern developments such as uh, robo-advice, 
online banking, um, crowdfunding, so the digital um, the digital aspects of finance. And very, very recently, there is uh, some budding uh, research also on the consequences of the environment and uh, how these could affect uh, household finances. So these, these are quite broad um, areas. So I think, you know, one thing we might uh, want to do to try to focus things a little bit uh, more and to make them come more to uh, life for uh, you uh, as uh, listeners is to give some examples of the interplay of different factors that we have highlighted in some recent crisis. And um, maybe we start with the fiscal crisis that uh, originated in a, in a statement uh, of the, the then finance minister in Greece uh, and which spread across a number of countries in uh, Europe and created a divide, a north-south divide and lots and lots of policy, but also political discussions and has affected the lives of many people. So Ilya, would you like to, to link you know, some of the areas of research um, that you're interested in to, you know, the fiscal crisis, what happened then? Yes, Michal. So I think it is vital to stress that it, the transformation of economics uh, has been actually touching the lives of everybody here. To give some concrete examples, in the 60s and the 70s, and I would say up until uh, the conclusion of my doctorate in 2005, most of the debate was in some sense ideological. For example, should the austerity uh, you know, uh, be applied in countries where they have exhibited fiscal profligacy, like for example, Greece before 2009, especially the period 2005-2009. And uh, setting aside the issue of whether austerity should, should be uh, applied, should be tax-driven, uh, so raising taxes or cutting down expenditure. But the new research that uh, most uh, of our colleagues and ourselves contribute to is very data-driven, trying to move from these ideological silos that have characterized research on the past decades. So to give some concrete uh, applications, so uh, our country, Greece, uh, the European periphery suffered a very deep uh, economic crisis, uh, financial and at the same time social uh, and political in the past decade. So uh, a lot of research digged into the area. So we have very now uh, concrete evidence for the following patterns. Regarding what led to the crisis, we have very compelling evidence that in the period 2001-2000, roughly speaking, eight, the global financial crisis, we have seen a lot of misallocation in the countries of the European periphery. A lot of capital and employment, uh, mostly worked in low productivity sectors. Let's think about real estate or construction in the case of Greece and Spain, and some much more skill-intensive dynamic areas of the economy, for example, related to R&D innovation, did, did not get significant priority. So this is something we observe across the South and has clearly contributed to the divergence of productivity between the North and the South. Secondly, we have very clear now evidence that the overborrowing of the state and to some extent also of the banking and the real estate sector have also contributed crucially to the crisis. Thirdly, this actually relates to my own research. 
It is not only economic, the drivers of the crisis, but also much more general, social and political. In some research that we did together also, I know that Michali, you contributed with Kostas uh, Meijer at Yale, Dimitri Vajanos at LSE, Nikos Vetas at the Athens University of Economic and Business, and Chris Pisaridis at the Northern School of Economics. Uh, we worked uh, trying to look at the structural deficiencies of the economies of Greece and the European South more generally. So, for example, there are huge differences in institutional capacity of the countries. Think about the legal system. Uh, Greece, and to a lesser extent, Italy, to initiate, when you initiate a trial, let's say you go to administrative courts or to tax courts, it takes ages, say years, to complete this process. And actually, this correlates very strongly with low levels of total factor productivity of efficiency. And we can also think about more cultural related kind of origins of the crisis. And it's not only that, we have seen through applied research, with actually very interesting data, that the duration of the crisis and the severity of the economic downturn are also related to institutional differences, which are large, even if one was to look within the Eurozone, comparing the countries of the periphery with the countries of the core. So I think there are many exciting areas, say, for economic research that touches the lives of people, that we can have as a guideline the significant theoretical innovations that happened in economics in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But now we live in the epoch of big data. We can use this data and try to say something meaningful also for policy and also to understand the lives of people. Yes, so from, from the household finance uh, perspective, uh, the idea or the, the object of analysis is uh, to see how households were influenced by this uh, enormous crisis that uh, was developing around them, uh, a crisis that uh, was a crisis of public finances, uh, but which... Um, originated uh, in different places, in different factors across even the fiscally troubled countries uh, of, the, of the South. So you had uh, countries um, like Spain and, you know, a northern country, uh, Ireland, where the uh, crisis, the fiscal crisis of the state originated in the overborrowing of households. And you had uh, countries like uh, Greece and uh, Portugal, and uh, Italy, which never never crossed the crisis uh, threshold, but was hovering around it, uh, where it was the state, it was the overborrowing of the state that was creating the problems for the banks, and this ultimately uh, created problems for households. So, you know, to touch upon uh, this cultural aspect that um, Elias mentioned, um, my own research, you know, we've done a, a paper where we uh, compare the financial behavior of immigrants to a single country, to, to Sweden coming from different uh, European countries. And uh, we do find um, cultural differences, differences in cultural predispositions in financial behavior of people just facing the same uh, environment uh, policy environment, uh, since they are immigrants to the same country. But uh, two things stand out. First, uh, there is a northern culture, but there is not a unique southern culture. So, so the fiscally troubled countries in the south do, did not, um, do not exhibit similar cultural 
predispositions in their financial uh, behavior. Um, the second important aspect is that when these culturally different people are faced with the same policies and institutions, uh, they tend to harmonize their behavior eventually. They tend to adapt, not quickly, not immediately, but eventually, um, you know, they tend to adapt, which uh, is also likely to be uh, sort of uh, a, a positive uh, sort of uh, feature for um, European uh, integration and harmonization of policies. Now, um, in, in one sentence, the problems that uh, households in fiscally troubled countries faced were a, you know, higher taxes, lower disposable incomes, loss of jobs in many cases, a shrinking uh, public sector, um, a, a public sector that had to shrink and provide less to them, um, cuts in pensions, um, increased risk regarding the availability of pensions in the future, but uh, also the availability of uh, public uh, health care, um, um, an elimination of their liquidity buffer, if you like, you know, the extra wealth that they had um, to um, take care of uh, future uh, shocks uh, um, to expenditures, to health, to whatever needs that they had. So this was a major um, issue. And of course, studying the behavior of households under this uh, crisis situation was also um, very important. And there was a lot of heterogeneity in it. Now with COVID-19, to go to a, a more recent crisis, we had a very different setup. So it was first an exogenous thing that had to, a crisis that had to do with uh, uh, health um, uh, health risk for which no government was um, responsible, right, in initiating uh, that, uh, unlike the fiscal crisis. We had uh, major supply constraints. We had inability to work for some people and continued ability to work for those who could uh, work online. Um, we had these furlough programs or differences across the Atlantic in terms of, you know, what um, policies they were adopting with regard to unemployment versus pres uh, preservation of jobs through furlough programs. Uh, a completely different situation, which allowed us to study effects on consumption but also um, effects on accumulation of bank deposits, lots of saving, um, lots of um, unwanted saving. And then the question um, becomes, which is relevant for the future, how much of that was uh, uh, for reasons of risk um, and how much of that was because people couldn't spend, they were locked, there was a lockdown, uh, etc. And of course, the answer to that has important implications for the future. Now, the war in Ukraine created a completely different environment, which has to do with inflation. And maybe Elias wants to take this up a little bit. Yeah, so let me just, before I do that, let me just stress something, uh, Mihaly, uh, uh, on your remarks. 
Uh, I think it is, I feel actually quite proud as an economist uh, that during the pandemic uh, and the period before, uh, economics had a big say on policy making uh, using the big data that are becoming increasingly available nowadays in order to steer policy making and also guide and advise individuals, for example, some of the issues that you mentioned about the, the, the risk that households take, for example, but also local and federal uh, governments. And this, I would say, so since you mentioned COVID, uh, if I recall correctly, the Center of Economic Policy Research that we are both affiliated, this is the main think net uh, uh, of economists in Europe, there was something like 500 papers, if I recall correctly, about the pandemic in the first three, four years, uh, three, four months, uh, so mid-2020, uh, there was a very uh, quick response and economists were at the, at the forefront, I would say, of the global, alongside, of course, doctors and innovators uh, of the vaccines, on trying to tame this totally unexpected uh, shock. Um, for example, my great colleagues uh, at the London Business School, they were preparing very meticulous data, not only measuring the impact of the pandemic on employment, using fintech, actually, data, of 7 million uh, Brits who were managing their incomes, uh, you know, their wages and their expenditure, fintech uh, kind of platforms, and they were guiding the Bank of England about the impact of the pandemic, not only on the mean, uh, if you like the average household, but also on the full distribution, like the rich, the very rich, the poor, and also depending on where you live, what was the impact of the pandemic, what was the impact of the fiscal support that some households were receiving. And I think this is actually a significant step forward uh, because we can guide policy uh, based on uh, data. And, you know, it's, uh, I have seen many people, you know, quarreling about ideas. Ideas clearly are important, but, you know, we can converge hopefully uh, when we use uh, data. Now, going to your question about the, the impact of the pandemic and the, where we stand right now, I think that it's safe to say that in 2021, and especially so in 2022, we have seen a so-called polycrisis. Uh, first, uh, we have seen the return of inflation, uh, something that you know at least my generation had kind of forgotten and even like the older generation they had to bring back the memories of the 70s although still inflation is not at the level that we observed at the time so this was to some extent uh, the effect of the supply chain disruptions that happened during the pandemic so for example factories uh, you know let's say uh, those who produce uh, cars or computers, they couldn't source chips or microprocessors from the from the places that they used to, so the cost went up, also the cost of shipping uh, increased uh, considerably. Now, on that, we had significant fiscal support, especially in the United States, but also in most parts of Europe and to a lesser extent also in the developing world, so disposable income increased, governance helped, and actually this was a good lesson coming from academic research and from the mistakes of government response back in 2008, 2010, 11. So we had fiscal support that boosted income and increased spending. At the same time, it was quite interesting because China, the factory of the world, despite the very severe lockdown policies, the factories remained open and the ports to some extent. So we had the factories open, Fiscal support in the United States and also in Europe. So consumption increased because the consumers in the Western world were able to source the goods mostly from China and Asia. So, of course, this 
this increased uh, uh, the price level and we saw a higher inflation. Then on top of that, uh, we had the, the attack of uh, Russia in Ukraine, uh, which further disrupted supply chains and most importantly, uh, energy prices. So we have now a polymorphous kind of crisis that is hitting at the same time the global economy. And I think it's for the very first time, correct me, Kali, here if, if I'm wrong, where we have a kind of bleak outlook in the United States, I would say very gloomy outlook in the United Kingdom where I work. Europe seems to be already in a recession as it is affected the most uh, also by Russia's attack uh, and aggression uh, in Ukraine. And at the same time, China, just because the Chinese officials have been very skeptical in unleashing the economy, is also in kind of a slowdown. So we have the big, like, hubs, engines of growth in the world economy going down at roughly speaking the same time. So it is kind of interesting to know where we are heading because we're in a place now where inflation is clearly quite high and alarmingly high, I would say, both in the US the Eurozone, uh, the United Kingdom, and more generally across the world. And the job of central banks seems to be actually quite challenging because they have to tighten monetary policy to sort of raise interest rates, increase the cost of borrowing for firms and households, while at the same time, they see the upcoming or perhaps the ongoing recession. So it is kind of a delicate job now of uh, monetary policy authorities, but also governments uh, conduct uh, fiscal policy to try to have a kind of soft, uh, if you like, a crisis, hopefully not particularly prolonged. Uh, because now, especially households uh, in high-income countries, but also in emerging markets, they see a considerable decline in the real income. But we didn't see that much during the pandemic because of the significant fiscal support that the government generously Support Yes, indeed. Uh, I think uh, what you mentioned at the beginning, which is that uh, for uh, most people with an active economic life right now, this environment is very new. I mean, the, the high inflation rate and the increasing interest rates um, are a new environment. I mean, the last time we had a similar kind of thing was Yes, in the 70s and in the 80s. Um, so for many people, you know, they hadn't started their economic life back then. Right now, I think an interesting, there's an interesting conflict between monetary policy and uh, fiscal policy, uh, which creates lots of uncertainties for people. So you have monetary policy that uh, you know wants to stick to the low inflation targets of two percent, two and a half percent, and wants to bring inflation back uh, down. And you have governments that are extremely, you know, which run fiscal policy, that are extremely concerned about you know the cost of energy and the financial hardship that uh, their uh, citizens um, uh, endure. And uh, they have a tendency to try uh, to, uh, you know, provide support for that. On top of this, there is uh, very high accumulated debt uh, from the COVID uh, period, and in some countries uh, from the fiscal crisis before that. So fiscal space uh, is uh, limited. Uh, 
fiscal intentions are in the direction of supporting uh, people. Monetary policy has to go in the opposite direction also for credibility of their inflation targets. And you know this creates enormous uh, risks and uncertainty and what we call ambiguity for people who don't know what to expect and uh, who cannot uh, forecast who is going to win, you know, the expansionary or the contractionary direction, uh, at least in the in the short run. Now, it is interesting, you know, in studies of subjective inflation expectations, for example, et cetera, that uh, what uh, people find is that uh, the, uh, you know, five year ahead inflation expectations are not so far away from the target. So, so people don't, you know, markets and individuals don't really expect uh, this turmoil and the high inflation to continue for a long time, but uh, exactly forecasting, um, you know, the, the outcomes is, uh, is very difficult and choosing optimally economic and financial behavior for households is very difficult in these more complicated times. Okay, let's um, let's go to switch topics a little bit and say, you know, there are there's so much complexity, so many complex uh, topics that uh, um, households, uh, you know, individuals in different countries should know about uh, in deciding their uh, economic activity, their finances, their behavior, uh, etc. What can education do? Um, what can financial education do and at what stages uh, to promote such understanding? Um, what do you think, Ilya? So, Michal, I think turning to education is, is spot on. And I will give two or three examples uh, from my own research and more generally from, from research in economics. So in our country, in Greece, Education in the in I would say the previous my father's and my grandfather's generation was the engine of social mobility. So my father grew up in the small rural place in the middle of nowhere in the Peloponnese. And here many of his friends managed to have like success in life, mostly by going to school, subsequently to law schools, medical or engineering school, and made well, you know, progressing not only economically but also socially. And in my research with um, uh, Alberto Alezina, Stelios Michalopoulos, and Sebastian Holman, we see that a huge portion of the African growth miracle that we are seeing since 2000, 2001, it is not as people tend to believe solely driven by commodities, actually it reflects improvements in human capital. So I think that the Greek society, for example, that used to have very high up in the agenda prioritizing the education of the kids and the grandchildren goes back that, especially because the economies of the Western societies, as time goes by, will become much more research and development, or if you like, skill or human capital intensive. For example, in medicine, actually, it was a great pride, I would say, for all Greeks to see that some leading figures in the relatively small uh, global a biotechnology market out of Greek origin, which was like a great uh, uh, to realize uh, at the time. Secondly, there have been, I would say, uh, you know, when people ask me, you know, what do we know from economic research of the past decades that we didn't know before? It's a typical uh, critique to economists. I always like to pinpoint uh, to the work of Jim Heckman at the University of Chicago and uh, Raj Shetty at Harvard and many others, 
on so-called early human capital formation. So we know now that kindergarten education, investing in skills, mostly non-cognitive, of kids at the age of three to seven, eight, has first order effects. Not only on economic success and entrepreneurial activity, you know, how well kids do at the age of five in a standardized test of uh, non-cognitive skills, correlates with low levels of obesity, higher life expectancy, uh, uh, less likely to have diabetes subsequently life, and of course, higher income. So this is something that we should invest as Greek society and global society way more, because we want to offer opportunities to kids. These kind of programs, we further know that they are particularly important to bring down inequality. And actually, I would say the worst type of inequality, because it, re it regards inequality of opportunity. So, you know, I typically, you know, every now and then I will discuss with some policymakers, both in Greece and in Europe, you know, they say that they care about inequality. Well, here is a kind of a low-hanging fruit. And I would say that does not have a very strong ideological, if you like, framework. You know, I believe that, you know, traditionally you can be both, both a bit more right-wing or more left-wing, but, you know, this is something coming from research, investing early skills formation. And the last point that I want that I want to stress also a bit, because with Stelios Michalopoulos at Brown, we're working in trying to quantify the impact in the economy and the Greek society of the influx of 2 million refugees who fled Asia Minor, Cappadocia, Constantinople, and Pontus, and fled back to Greece 100 years ago, actually, I came to realize that, you know, despite having, quote unquote, good education, you know, many issues of very modern Greek history are not particularly uh, well known. We tend to all follow cliches and some simple explanation of history. So I strongly encourage, you know, uh, all my compatriots to do what I did actually, I must say, quite late in my mid forties, to go back and try to learn not only about the uh, more generic uh, skills, but also about our own history. And I think, Michali, your work uh, on financial uh, education and financial literacy, uh, this very exciting research agenda that I know that you contribute, uh, actually shows remarkably, remarkable kind of results. So why don't you please uh, elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I mean, we uh, one thing that uh, we have found, I have found in my own research with Chan Karabulut and Thomas Janssen is that um, if you educate uh, certain people um, in uh, economics and financial uh, matters, uh, then uh, there is a social multiplier that actually transfers this um, uh, knowledge uh, to uh, their neighbors, their peers, the people that they interact with. So this is actually quite important in uh, figuring out, you know, for policymakers in deciding whether to undertake expensive, potentially expensive financial education or economics education programs in uh, schools, that, uh, you know, the results, uh, the effects are, are going to reach uh, quite beyond. But in, in current uh, research that I'm doing with the same uh, authors, what we find is uh, about the role of education uh, and inequality, which is something you mentioned. You, men you mentioned inequality of opportunity, you mentioned inequality, you know, income inequality, etc. We are looking at wealth inequality, and we are looking 
at a sort of almost natural quasi experiment of uh, placing uh, of refugees arriving uh, in a particular country in Sweden and being placed to different areas in Sweden. And what we are able, you know, we're looking at Sweden because of the quality of the data there the, in the special uh, experiment. And what we are finding is that people who were um, educated people who were placed in areas with high higher wealth inequality became motivated by this higher wealth inequality and they uh, at, were much more likely to attain higher positions in the wealth distribution 10 to 20 years later and higher levels of wealth uh, and this happened through uh, being more likely to take risks financial risks to um, engage in self-employment uh, and uh, to uh, invest in real estate Whereas the less educated people, people without university education, uh, were unresponsive to these external stimuli or the challenges posed by uh, wealth inequality and by their environment. Um, so this suggests that, you know, knowing, having education, knowing what to do, how to handle risks, uh, how to take advantage of uh, opportunities. Uh, is uh, very important, uh, not only for income inequality, but also for, for wealth inequality. Now, there is research, you know, then you, you mentioned um, very nicely Heckman's work on uh, early life uh, education. And uh, there is uh, research uh, also by Sule Allen um, in uh, Turkey, uh, where she did an experiment in primary schools. And um, they trained some people, some students, primary school students, uh, not of course about stock holding, et cetera, but about being more patient, not being so impatient in their demands, right? Um, and uh, and not did not treat, did not train others and compared um, behavior afterwards and found that this had an effect on behavior. And, and very importantly, she also uh, tested for differences in behavior eight months after the course was completed. And it seems that there is a persistent effect from this uh, young uh, student education on behavior uh, that uh, you know, travels through time and uh, doesn't disappear immediately. Uh, but of course, uh, beyond you know, and of course, there, there is the example of countries like Australia, which have introduced financial education programs in cycles. Like in Greece, we learn history three times um, uh, in the different levels of uh, primary and secondary education. In, in Australia, you have cycles of financial education. And of course, repetition helps and uh, generates uh, more financially responsible and financially alert uh, people who can take uh, um, can make better use of opportunities in the future. So these are some examples uh, that suggest that uh, intervention and financial education and economics education in schools is um, is important. Okay, yes. so. But Michal, if I was to add something here and stress, uh, you mentioned uh, Sweden, and we have to convey to our, to our to our listeners that we have a lot of evidence from Denmark, from
from Sweden, from the United States, from a couple of countries, just because those countries not only collect high quality administrative data, but they are quite open, open, quite open to share those data with academic research. And this is something really good for, for those countries as well. It's good, good for knowledge, but at the same time, good for them. So, for example, the IRS has shared data with a fantastic team, the so-called Moving to Opportunity teams. And what is the outcome? We have an extremely good mapping of poverty and opportunity in the U.S. at the block level. So you can go to Cincinnati in a particular neighborhood and trace mobility and compare it to a nearby neighborhood. And at the same time, the U.S. tax collection agencies get the expertise of economists on how to tackle tax evasion. So it's something of a nice synergy between academic research and the state. And let me use the RSTI like a, a forum, this forum, to push that we need way more for this, both in Greece and in Europe. Precisely. And uh, let me give you the example of the data that we have been using, you know, Swedish data. Uh, this is wealth tax data. This is data that was originally uh, collected so that, uh, you know, the tax administration authorities could uh, uh, calculate the uh, wealth tax. This data is being shared, of course, completely anonymized because researchers don't care about the identities of these people and the names, but completely anonymized, uh, shared with researchers. Um, the, the data set allows us, uh, you know, and in my description of results, I said what people do 10 to 20 years later allows us to track the, uh, the people and the behavior of the people over 20 years which is uh, unbelievable uh, for um, you know, many, many uh, different countries. And then we are able to give back uh, to um, you know, the data providers the findings of our research that can inspire other changes. So this, this public-private uh, researcher collaboration uh, and this linking, the potential to link uh, administrative data sets uh, of different types is very important. So, for example, you know, linking IQ tests from the army to financial behavior of households allows, uh, or economic behavior allows uh, researchers and policymakers to understand the link between cognitive abilities and economic or financial behavior. This is just one example uh, of many. Final topic for discussion, uh, which is common for all Aristia podcasts, is uh, in a perfect setting, whom would you like to invite uh, to dinner? Uh, what place and cuisine would you select? What music would you play in the background? So I'll give you my, uh, my choice. Um, I would go to Monembasia. I would go to Canoni uh, restaurant uh, with beautiful view of uh, Monembasia, and uh, I would invite Yanis uh, Ritsos, uh, who was uh, born there, uh, and I would play Mikis Theodorakis' music in the background, and I would ask him how he formed his views and opinions about Romniosini, about you know the Greek spirit, and uh, how it has evolved over time, how it has survived, what what makes it uh, go forward? How about you, Ilya? Well, I'm, uh, you know, 
my family's audience from the Peloponnese, I would go to Calavreta, perhaps, uh, uh, so slightly north. But very similar to you, I would try to invite to Calavreta a great Cretan, Nikos Kazadzakis. Actually, it's our views are not that different because Yanis Richards and uh, Nikos Kazadzakis were kind of co-influencing each other. I think they had both common um, uh, origins, their intellectual uh, way uh, uh, of thinking. Uh, so uh, for the background song, I would defer to them actually to choose. I think I have seen a video um, where Yanis Richards, alongside Mikis Theodorakis, they sing together Epitaphios, uh, you know, the monumental piece of Yanis Richards uh, that Mikis Theodorakis uh, converted to music. So something either from Axion ST, um, I would go with the music of Theodorakis, mostly because I think, uh, and I thank him, uh, for his colossal contribution in the Greek society of taking Greek poetry uh, of, of the caliber of riches of, uh, of Odysseus Elitis, of George Seferis, and converting, making this poetry something that, you know, ordinary Greeks feel and connect about, which I think is a humongous contribution that I have not seen uh, in other countries. Tiramiosini mi digles es na ti petiete na ti petiete na ti na ti na ti petiete na ti petieta poxarchis ki andrievi ke serjevi Na ti petieta poxarchis ki andrievi ke serjevi ke kamakoni to serjo me to kamakitilu ke kamakoni to serjo me to Ilya, it's been, uh, you know, I always enjoy talking with you. Uh, Me too, I... Mihaly. Thanks a lot. It's great chatting with each other, always. Absolutely. I think we'll have to do the next one in some nice uh, fish tavern. Uh, absolutely. And with a nice uh, music. <laughs> a huge thank you to Michael Haliasos and Ilias Papayoanou for this podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence.